This episode of Crossing the 180 is brought to you by Sony's C Media Cloud. C supports the entire media lifecycle to streamline workflows for your video production teams so that you can go from camera to cloud to Final Cut faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at sonymcs.com. That's Sony, M as in Mary, C as in Charlie, S as in Sam.com. Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, ho you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy Ron Dawson coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180. Part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the worlds of film and television. And today on the show, we have filmmaker Mobilaji Olambiwanu. Mobilaji is the filmmaker behind the documentary Ferguson Rising. It's a look at how the lives of Michael Brown's family, particularly his father, was turned upside down after Michael's killing by Ferguson, Missouri, police officer Darren Wilson back in 2014. It's a film that looks at how a community finds purpose and pain, and it's executive produced by lacks of actor David Oyelowo, the rapper Riza, Academy Award-winning producer T.J. Martin, and others. Mobilaji and I have a great conversation about his work, his thoughts on other prominent black filmmakers, how different he saw himself as an African immigrant in America relative to black people who were born here, and how he overcame challenges to make this documentary. I have no doubt you will be inspired. So here's my conversation with filmmaker and professor Mobilaji Olambiwanu. See you on the other side. Well, before we jump in talking about your film and just kind of work you've done as a filmmaker, do you remember what your first movie memory was? Like the first movie I watched? I think of it more as like your first movie memory that for some reason has an impact on you. Yeah. It could be just like the first movie you remember watching, or it could be the first time you felt like a movie moved you in a particular way. I remember watching Star Wars for sure when I was like six years old Yeah, in the, uh, in the movie theater. In Nigeria. Nigeria? Huge, wow. Yeah, and this huge, uh, the National Stadium is what they, uh, they call it. And, uh, and, you know, probably like a thousand people in the audience or something. And uh, I just remember being really blown away by that movie experience um, and just, you know, really obsessed with Star Wars. I think that was the first movie I ever saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 1977, I think it was. Yeah. I think it, in all the years that I have asked this question, that is by far the most popular answer I get. I know. I'm sure. That's, I was trying to look for something else that, yeah. I, that was not the answer that everybody else probably gives. But Usually the question I ask filmmakers, like, what was the film that made you want to become a filmmaker? And Star Wars is the answer. Oh, okay. That's the one. That's yeah, yeah. This question is more like... Uh, you know, the first, you know, going back to your childhood, what's the first movie memory you have? And that isn't necessarily the movie that made you want to become a filmmaker. So I think that's why on this, on this particular show, uh, Star Wars hasn't come up in past podcasts where I've asked filmmakers, you know, what made you want to become a filmmaker? Star Wars comes up a lot. Um, what do you remember from Star Wars when you saw it in Nigeria? Was it? In English, in Nigerian subtitles, did you know English? Like, how was it presented? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's a British colony, British colony, so it was an, it was an English. Uh, Aren't we all British thing. colonies? Yes, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was in English. Um, and what do I remember? I don't even know if I remember anything per se, because it was so long ago and I was so young. But um, I think what I remember more than anything is, is probably the feeling. Mm-hmm you know, of being immersed in this world, the, um, the audio, the sound, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fullness of, of, of the experience and, right. um, and how, how mind boggling and sort of life changing it was in that sense, because, right. um, you know, cause I'd never been 
you know, in a, in a movie theater and watch the film, you know, certainly any time prior to that. So, um, so I just remember that just feeling mm-hmm. um, totally immersed, uh, totally just blown away, I would say, yeah. uh, for sure. Um, and just, uh, and moved by, I think, the story and the visuals and this whole other world that was being mm-hmm. created, I think, you know, maybe even more so as a child, just having access to another world and alternate reality was something I think I hadn't uh, obviously contemplated before the age of six. Um, you know, so um, right. I think that part um, is the part that I think was just most impressive about it. Yeah. Were you able to see additional movies after that growing up in Nigeria? Yeah. We did like stuff on VHS or whatever, um, mm-hmm. the rescuers or whatever, or was it on beta? Who knows, whatever it was back then. Okay. Um, you know, but we watched like, you know, animation, like the rescuers. I remember watching that um, mm-hmm. and being really, you know, sort of, but I was watching that on TV. It wasn't, you know, it's right. not the same immersive experience. So um, I, I remember um, when I came to America, I remember, um, being taken to the theater with my mom because she wanted to see an officer and a gentleman. Interesting. And um, is that the one with Lewis Gossett Jr.? Exactly. And um, was it Richard yeah. Greer? Yeah, Richard Gere. Exactly. Gear. Yeah, Gear. Yeah. Yeah, and and so I just remember being in that movie theater and the, uh, you know, and the the love scene in that movie and my mom covering my eyes, you know, so I don't have to, you know, um, I remember that, um, mm-hmm. you know, and. Um, and also being blown away by that movie. And then um, and then I think in my early teens, so like 12, preteen, I remember going to see um, uh, Beat Street. Um, oh, Beat was, Street. Uh, yeah, because the king of the beat, I see you're rocking that the beat from across yeah, the street. street. Uh-huh. Uh, beat Street. <laughs> that was my favorite breakdancing movie yeah, growing up. The streets beat you. <laughs> all right. And I, I, can still, I can still rap all the lyrics. <laughs> beat Street or Breaking. Yeah, no, Beat Street was my favorite one. Yeah. Just that New York vibe. Breaking was a little too weird in LA, I think, for me. Yeah, I think I think between East Coast and West Coast breakdance movies, like Breaking kind of felt bubblegum. I mean, yeah, I enjoyed exactly. it growing yeah, up. Yeah, I enjoyed it, yeah. Whereas Beat Street felt hard, and it felt exactly. like the dancing was better. It felt more authentic. Remo! Yeah, that's right. He gets electrocuted on the tracks. I still, I still remember. I, I don't even know if I've seen that movie since then, but I, but I remember that. I just remember that he gets electrocuted on the tracks and totally whatever else. And I was like, yeah, you know, because he's going, he's going after spit. Right. I don't even remember. I didn't remember that part. I just remember him getting electrocuted. Primo was like a graffiti artist, and this dude who was like a, I guess, a failed graffiti artist. He would just go around spraying spit on everyone else's, and then Primo caught him. And he chases him down the tracks, and then he hits a track and yeah, that, that, that dies for his art. Line. And then yep. they do, and then they do the the whole break dance uh, tribute thing, tribute to him at the end. Oh wow, I gotta I gotta watch it again with, I don't Afri- I- with African Bombada performing, and um, oh wow, Ray Dong Chong was in that was in that film. Yeah, I don't even I, like I said. Literally, I have not seen that movie since I, I saw it probably a bunch of times when I was twelve, but I can't remember. I haven't seen it since then, so now I'm gonna have to revisit. I'm sure the acting and everything's terrible, but at the time it was. Um, yeah, I just remember being really impressed, being a break dancer, of course, and just watching right. them. And, right. And now, of course, if you compare that to the, the kind of crazy stuff they do in break dancing nowadays, it's like. Yeah, I, I'm surprised it's it's kind of lived up. Um, growing up, were you aware of like images that you saw on television or movies? They either looked like you or didn't look like you, like. Was that something you were aware of? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and did it affect you in any way? Yeah, I mean, my story is probably a little more complex in that um, I started watching TV in Nigeria. So you're in an all-black country, and you're watching, you know, Charlie's Angels, and you're watching, (laughs) you know, um, The Love Boat, and you're watching, you know, um, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, Good Times, you know. So even from that early age, even though like Sanford and Son and, um, you know, the Jeffersons and those folks look like me, you mm. know, we didn't share the same culture necessarily. So, right. so there was still a feeling of being uh, an outsider, um, even though there was, you know, some representation, particularly because it's Africa. Um, right. There was representation of Black people on the screen from America and there was representation locally 
on TV from, you know, different TV shows that were, right. um, you know, sort of indigenous to, to the country. Um, and so we had, um, yeah, we had a tremendous amount of representation there, but I, I, but, but I think what was really crucial and really important is that, and I think that many African-American people don't know this, which is that the images in the African-American TV shows I saw did damage to my perception of African-Americans. Interesting. So while, so while African-Americans found Sanford and Son funny because they knew that wasn't a real, per I mean, that might've been a real person, but it wasn't everybody. Mm -hmm. And they knew that George Jefferson, you know, acting a fool might be a person, but wasn't really representative of everybody. Um, I didn't know that. Mm. So to me, George Jefferson was every black person. To me, uh, you know, Sanford and Son and whatever, you know, Red Fox was every black person. And to me, you know, uh, Michael and Thelma and, you know, Good Times, that was every black person. So, so the, the, the through line between all those three programs was sort of this buffoonery. Mm. And so, so to me, black people became synonymous with, you know, buffoons. Interesting. And, uh, you know, and so again, while we think our programming is harmless, um, you know, whether it be um, nowadays, I guess, in those categories would be, uh, you know, like Tiffany Haddish or, mm -hmm. you know, that type of, you know, Kevin Hart, um, you know, we know as, as people who are part of the black community and have a much more nuanced perspective, we know that those aren't real people and that even Kevin Hart, the person that Kevin Hart plays when he's playing a character or when he's doing one of his shows, isn't even the real Kevin Hart himself. Right. The rest of the world doesn't know that. Right. And so, and so there's, you know, the, 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 that is the only image and the only thing they know about black people is Kevin Hart, is Tiffany Haddish. And so when we're not taken seriously around the world and when we're not respected around the world, it, is, it really comes from these images that we allow to be proliferated. I don't know if we allow them to be pro proliferated in the sense that we're not in charge of that pr proliferation, but we're part and parcel of our own sort of downfall in the sense that we, we, um, we, we participate Mm -hmm. in this um in this creation that um that is funded by someone who's not part of the culture in the first place um and that gives the rest of the world an impression so so when a black person is killed as in my movie in ferguson rises or anything else um it's no big deal because the person that was killed is this sort of monster in our imaginations or this 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 buffoon or someone who's who's unworthy right the impressions that i had about african americans in terms of them you know, this idea that African-American people didn't work hard enough, didn't take advantage of the opportunities, um, all came from watching those shows. Wow. You know, watching, watching George Jefferson mess up the opportunities. Mm -hmm. Watching George Jefferson get pissed off at some white person for some reason that seemed outlandish, kicking him out of his house and losing money, mm -hmm. you know, and, and losing the opportunity, you know, watching, um, you know, good times and those folks sort of, you know, um, struggling and, and squandering away opportunities, watching JJB you know, buffoonish and do all mm -hmm. those different things. He, you know, there, there was a consistent through line that is, um, that to me is very disturbing. Um, and, and that I think African-Americans have just gotten so used to um, that, that they don't see it because you have to have that contrast, I think, coming from a completely different country and coming to this country to be able to see it. And then to see how I was um, perceived when I got here, mm. being a black person, right? And like, you must play basketball. And, you know, and it was for that reason I never learned how to play basketball because the assumption was that I, I knew how to play basketball when until I got here, I didn't even know what basketball was. Right. You know, so I'm like, how can I play a sport that I don't even, that I didn't even know what it was like just a few months ago? I just got here. Right. What are you talking about basketball? I only, I play soccer I mean, or, or football as we called it. Right. You yeah. Know, so I'm like, this, this, the, you know, and so then it really pissed me off. Um, but, they, but there were a whole set of assumptions that were sort of foisted upon me based on the people in this country being exposed, particularly the non-Black people in this country being exposed to that imagery of Black people, mm -hmm. right? And so, and then my rebellion against that, right? So, so when we talk about um, seeing ourselves on the screen and seeing ourselves as young people or as Black people on the screen, none of those representations were me. Even Bill Cosby and the more positive representations um, were not me because they weren't African. They weren't, you know, my, my mother's from Jamaica. Um, so they weren't African or J Nigerian or Jamaican, they were African American. So mm -hmm. um, some extent, um, there was always a distance, you know, and I think, you know, it's only now that we're beginning to see shows with African characters and things of that sort. Um, you know, we had coming to America, which was an, it was an insult to me, 
which I think many African-American people loved, mm-hmm. but to me it was insulting because it didn't really represent Africa, didn't represent right. African culture. They didn't, have, they didn't have real African accents. They didn't come from a real place in Africa. They, they had animals in their backyard. They, you know, there was just <laughs> a, a ridiculousness to it that, 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 that then became assumed to be the truth. Wow. Like, this is what your experience was like growing up in African mobilizing. And, and me getting annoyed and saying, no, I didn't have lions and tigers in my backyard. You know, just having to explain really silly and stupid things because, again, once again, the imagery had betrayed me um, and betrayed sort of my cultural, um, maybe cultural and political sensibilities and right. really made Africa into, a, you know, again, a buffoonish sort of place. You know, I think that's also what drove me to filmmaking is, is this idea that I don't see myself. Mm. I don't even see myself. Even if I were African-American growing up in the way that I grew up, I didn't really see myself, right? And I'm sure right. you can identify with that as well. You know, I, you know, I see, you know, thug number one, thug number two, you know, boys in the hood to baby boy, you know, mm-hmm. boy justice. I mean, you name it, but movies that didn't really represent my experience growing up, right? So, so that was a challenge for the most part. And I think, again, a lot of that is, is shifting now we're seeing, you know, Bob Hart, Abishola, and things like that that have African characters, even though some of them are not really that realistic. They're they're closer to mm-hmm. the experience that um that I had coming to this country or I had, you know, growing up in this country. Um, and so, you know, I'm grateful for all that, and I'm actually participating in that wave. I think myself of transformation in terms of the ideas and things I'm working on. So, yeah. right, um, yeah. Are you familiar with like the that there was between Spike Lee and Tyler Perry back in the day. I probably heard it, but I probably didn't pay that much attention. I mean, it goes to a lot of what you're talking about because, I mean, I think they've since patched things up. I don't even know if beef is the right word, but there was this dynamic where essentially Spike felt like Tyler Perry's media films were, I mean, he used the word, do you use buffoonery? Uh, and he felt like it, it kind of hurt the community, whereas Tyler was saying, you know, the films that he makes appeals to a certain Southern sensibility. Like, there's aspects of the media films, yeah, there's silliness, but there's also a point in those films that mm-hmm. touches on what life was like, to some extent, for Black people growing up in the South. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he commented, you may want to comment about how either Langston Hughes or um, Frederick Douglass, one of those two, commenting on uh, Zora Neale Hurston and oh, know, her language in, the, in her books. Yeah, right, right, right. Language in her books, which again was coming from a Southern sensibility versus them coming from you know a, a Northern New York Harlem sensibility. And he says the same thing was happening with between him and Spike now, and it's just not being able to connect. And, you know, your, your thoughts on that, this idea of, okay, to a lot of people, particularly what's happening, like in Chicago, you know, Cabrini Greens is where it's supposedly took place. Like in those, um, in those areas, there are a lot of black people who relate to that. Like they grew up in those kind of environments, those kind of apartments. It's this idea of, obviously, black people are in a monolith. But, you know, your thoughts on something like that, where, well, for some black people, it is their experience. Right. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, it's the, the need for everything that black people do to be rooted around comedy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. That, you know, I, I think um, is, is what makes it even more problematic because mm-hmm. comedy sort of requires a level of buffoonery mm-hmm. to a certain extent. I mean, there are different types of comedy. Of course, there's, there's comedy that's sort of more intellectual. Right. But, um, I think to you know sort of appeal to the broadest market. I think we wind up with comedy that um, that is base and very sort of you know buffoonery mm-hmm. laden. Right. Want to say, um, and I think that is the um, where the disservice you know occurs. Um, you know, I have a deep amount of respect for Tyler Perry's accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a deep amount of respect for um, for Spike Lee's accomplishments. I tend to probably lean more towards Spike Lee films. I'm not drawn at all to um, Tyler Perry films culturally mm-hmm. or um, comedically, though I have seen the first few Medeas and they were funny, but my background, my degree is in um, communication theory. 
um, at UCLA, my undergraduate degree, and um, and you know we studied images, mm-hmm. studied the politics of images very carefully, and so it's hard for me to erase that sort of political understanding in the sense of the politics of imagery um, when I watch Tyler Perry's movies, even when I watch Spike Lee's movies to some extent, um, like you know Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. I thought um, I thought tonally was off. Um, and, and needed to be much more serious and less buffoonish. In some cases, the, the clan, to me, were um, absolved of their true demonic sort of nature um, by being made to seem like buffoons in that film. So mm-hmm. they, you know, they didn't feel like the, the threat that they really are at present right. and were, um, especially now with the rise of the alt-right. Um, I feel like it was imperative to um, to really represent them in a way that... Um, that showed them as, as a danger to society. Mm-hmm. But I think the film, I think he sort of, um, you know, brought it down a notch by making them into these silly characters. And I think, I think Spike has a, a history of infusing comedy into his drama. And, and in some way, in some places, it's very effective, do the right thing. Right. You know, right. Very effective. Um, you know, bamboozled, not so, not so much tonally, I think was off. And uh, same thing, Black Klansman, I think it, it worked well in the dramatic parts, but I think, um, when the sort of, you know, mm-hmm. more comedic elements came in, um, I think it became, um, you know, slightly problematic in terms of, um, not in terms of the film itself. Yeah. I think people, people see the film um, as sort of its own ecosystem, but I think um, put within sort of a broader societal context, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, it can be problematic, you know, and I think even, even do the right thing, you know, and Malcolm X can be slightly problematic in looking at them within a broader societal context. You know, do black people get killed by police because they wanted photographs up on a wall? Is that really what mm-hmm. motivates black people to to push the 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 political boundaries and um, protests and you know get out there? Is it pictures on the wall that that do that, or is that a little too simplistic of a device mm. that then sort of belittles the nature of black protest? You know, so I mean, you know, I, I also I'm a professor in Pan African Studies at the at Cal State LA. So I teach black I teach you know third world cinema, African American cinema, cinema, and you know race. You know, so I wind up reading all these books, right? You know, and all these you know sort of critiques of of black filmmakers. You know, again, no no disrespect to them at all in terms of their hard work and their and their um their catalog of films, but I think. Um, Oftentimes, they don't have a broader understanding of the cultural context and the the impact and the implications of of their work. Um, um, And I think sometimes it would make it really difficult to make anything if you had a connection to all the implications around your work, because because then you might not you might be too afraid to do anything because you're scared that, you know, and and that has been a problem. That's been why it's taken me so long, I think, to to make this first film or just to make any film was because of. Um, because of that training and that background, I'm highly critical of my own work because right, I don't right. want it to slip into these, um, you know, narratives um, that I feel are destructive to the Black community, um, given that there's so little content out there. There's more now, but so little content of any of any value. I feel like I want to be part of the community that adds value and adds uh, adds a level of depth, and, and that depth oftentimes is not achieved through comedy, mm-hmm. um, though it can be. And, yeah. I, and I'm hoping to be, you know, and I've seen it done in a lot of um, European and American, white American cinema, but not so much in in in, um, in black cinema. So I'm hoping to be the person who, when I do do some of the comedies, that I, I bring that level of um, depth and nuance, and um, that's my uh, my hope. So what was it that made you want to make uh, Ferguson Rises? Um, my son, you know, really. Um, my wife was. Um, pregnant with um with our son um seven months pregnant with our son when michael brown was killed you know and it just um shook me to my core you know Mm -hmm. um i um i I think i I was shaken already prior a couple years prior two years prior um by trayvon martin's death Mm -hmm. um, or killing rather and the nature of it and then to see this happen with michael brown at that time was like you know here we go again, you know, and I think this is before all the cell phone videos and mm-hmm. the things that are ubiquitous now that I think we've gotten used to. So we forget that there was a time when black bodies being destroyed was not front page news, didn't even show up on the news at all. Right now, at least it's in the news now, mm-hmm. you know, and there was a period of time where it was front page news. Um, but there was there is, you know, centuries before that where it didn't show up at all. 
you know, where right. it took it took Ida B. Wells documenting lynchings to for us to know about them in the black community, right? And then and then when integration happened, there was no Ida B. Wells documenting lynching, right? Um, you know, so ironically enough, that that character and that person disappeared, and then it was like there was this sort of gulf where we didn't know that these things were happening. At least those of us who were privileged, and those of us who who um, were sort of you know sequestered away in predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, you know, we experienced racism, we experienced other things, but but to a large extent, we didn't experience that level of uh, incessant sort of violence that the Black community experiences. And so, so to see that and to have my child on the way, or our child on the way, I shouldn't say mine, but mm-hmm. um, our child on the way, just I kept thinking, you know, what world am I creating for my child? You know, right. what is my responsibility as a parent bringing someone into this world? do I just bring him in the world and just, you know, wash my hands of it all? Or do I actually try to do something that, that recontextualizes black pain, black loss in a way that offers my child some sense of hope, some sense of purpose in the pain, some sense that, that the pain is not for nothing. Right. You know? And so for me, um, I wanted to, to recontextualize it. I didn't want the media to just, um, to, to be the, the sole defining factor or the sole, entity that defined our experience when the media is, is, is predominantly non-Black and predominantly non-working class and predominantly non-sympathetic to Black people. Uh, I didn't want that 30-second soundbite to be um, all that there was, you know, or those, the, the accumulation of 30-second soundbites or one-minute soundbites to be right. all that there was for, for Mike Brown's legacy and, and, and for my son to witness his legacy. Um, I didn't want him to witness it through that gaze. Um, I wanted him to witness it through through a black gaze, through a black male gaze, through through the the, the gaze of someone who who saw Michael Brown as himself. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm like, if if someone's going to tell my son what happened, I'm going to be the one that tells my son what happened, mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell him what happened in a way that doesn't diminish his humanity and doesn't rob him of the opportunity to have hope, to have peace. Um, because I don't have hope and I don't have peace mm. and I don't want him to be left with that at all. And so for me, it became imperative that I, that I do something for him. And then on top of that, um, I also want to make sure that um, I knew that at some point he would ask me, like I did my parents who came to the United States for school in the 60s. They went back in the 70s to, mm-hmm. to Nigeria, my mom, mother and father. But they came in the 60s um, and they were in New York City with Malcolm X and you know, all those speeches taking place. And I, you know, so I asked them, I said, you know, as immigrants, I asked them, I said, you know, where did you go to any Malcolm X's speeches? Did you do any protesting? Were you involved in the civil rights movement? You know, and their answer was no, you know, in my twenties. And, um, and I mean, I understand now as immigrants, you know, why that answer would be no. Um, but back then in my twenties, when I was highly judgmental, um, you know, my thought was like, you know, you guys were around all that and you didn't do anything, mm-hmm. you know, like you don't have any stories to tell me nothing. Right. You know, and I, and I know that my son at 12, you know, from somewhere from the age of 12 all the way up into the age of 30 will probably be in that judgmental phase. And he will ask me, you know, what did you do at this important moment in history? Mm. You know, did you sit silent? Did you cross your hands? And at that moment, when he's 12 years old, I can bring out this film and I can say, you know, I made this for you. And, mm. you know, your, na- your name is in the credits. Your name is at the end. It says dedicated to my son. Ellis Lambiwana. And and so you know that I didn't do nothing. Mm. That you know that I that I stood for something and that I did something to to make a difference in your life and to make a difference in the world in a way that um that maybe many parents don't. And you understand how deeply you are loved and appreciated and cared for. And 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 so much so that we spent seven years making a film that, you know, was very difficult to make, <laughs> you know. So yeah. So yeah, I mean that that's a long, long-winded answer, but but really that's ultimately um that was the impetus behind it was, you know, um I would also say I mean I was arrested and framed when I was 19 wow. um in in uh, in New Jersey for for a crime that I didn't commit. And it was that arrested and framed that was sort of the the birth caused the birthing, I guess, of my African American identity. You know, prior to 19, I came here when I was nine from Nigeria. And um, prior to my arrest and frame in 19, those 10 years, I spent mostly considering myself African and somehow believing that I was different, somehow believing that I, you know, that, and, and, and being told by much of 
um, white America and other ethnic groups um, that you're different than other black people, which most black people in white neighborhoods get that anyway. <laughs> um, I, I got the additional yes. um, aspect because they're like, well, you're African. You're not like these African-American people. And, you know, I, I allowed myself to believe the lie. And uh, and then, you know, I did, I was, you know, went to the East Coast to do door-to-door sales for a Southwestern company, a book sales company, and um, and was sadly awakened to the truth that um, that no one was asking me whether I was African when when they saw me or, you know, or trying to listen right. to, or, you know, and I didn't have an accent anymore. So it wasn't like, you know, they could, um, they could hear anything if they actually took the time to speak to me. So, um, so I became by default, you know, African American, because mm-hmm. any black person in, in, in America is African American, whether they believe it or not, or know it or not, there is no real other sense of other identities. Um, of black people, you know. So my my Asian friends get mad. They're like, "You can't tell that I'm Chinese. What do you mean? Don't call me Japanese, blah blah." And I'm like, you know, and I tell them, I said, "I wish people would guess that I was from an African country, even if it's the wrong country. I wish they <laughs> would even I wish they would even think that I was from somewhere else besides the United States." So I, I'm, I'm like, at least they think and know you're from somewhere, and they right. and, and then they connect you with 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 a with a continent and a and a, and a people and a culture. Um, you know, with mm-hmm. with African American, that's the you, 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 they don't even connect you with that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and so you know, so I'm like, I'm, I'm 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 wishing people would guess that I was from Zimbabwe, even though I'm from Nigeria, right? right. Like I'm I'm wishing people would guess I was from Kenya. You know, that at least is close. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> it's interesting you say that because from my experience with Asian people, um, I think I know some Asian people who would have a a big issue with that comment. If you think about like what the Japanese think of Korean people and vice versa oh, yeah, of course. and stuff like of course. that. And so, or even but like the same occurs on the African continent. I mean, you yeah. know, you, you know, if you get, if you thought I was from, you know, well, most people hate Nigerians on the African <laughs> continent. So, so, so we, we have less of an opinion, a negative opinion of everybody else than they do of us primarily because we're just everywhere. Um, right. And such large numbers and, and just, you know, a, a large group of overbearing people. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'd say that jokingly, but, um, but I think so most people around the African continent, if you, if you told a Ghanaian that they were Nigerian, they'd be pissed off, right. you know, so they don't want to, you know, they don't necessarily want to be associated with, 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 with Nigerians. So, right, right. so, so it's, it's similar on the continent in that sense. But, but for me, I'm like, you know, I'm a Pan-Africanist. So, so for me, if you confuse me for, you know, for a Ghanaian or a Zimbabwean, I'm like, I'm happier. At least it's close. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know I'm like, yeah. You know, so I don't have that same sensitivity towards it, but I, I can understand the sensitivity that Asian people have for sure. All right. We're going to take a break from the podcast so that we can pay some bills. Tired of uploading content to multiple systems. Now you can work smarter, not harder with Sony's C Media Cloud. Get blazing fast uploads, secure, reliable backup, Seamless, simple sharing and real-time collaboration in a single, easy-to-use cloud service. With C, the possibilities are virtually endless. C allows your team to securely and reliably share, organize, review, and collaborate on, and deliver professional media files all in a flash. You'll find C's powerful built-in collaboration tools and apps are designed specifically for media professionals to work more efficiently. And C's creative suite of apps and tools can empower broadcast and production teams to collaborate on videos in real time, all within a trusted workspace. Let Sony's C Media Cloud help transform how your content moves across the entire media cycle, from camera to post to final cut, faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at SonyMCS.com. That's Sony, Emma's and Mary, Season Charlie, S as in Sam.com. Now, back to the podcast. You said it was hard making the film. What was the biggest challenge you had, and, and what advice would you give to other documentary filmmakers facing a similar challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, the biggest challenge was really just um, the money, mm. right? I think the universal challenge. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have an idea, you're a creative person you know, you want to fulfill on that idea. And then you realize in order to fulfill on that idea, you have to be a producer. And you realize you don't come from a business background. You don't have a business mindset. You don't have, you know, a fundraising mindset. You don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. And yet you have this idea and you have this commitment to your child. You have this commitment now to a community. 
you know, as you begin to film, you know, it's like, you know, you, you've taken people's time mm-hmm. or they've given you their time. And I never wanted to take that lightly. So it's like, they gave me their time when they did the interview with me. Now I have to at least at the very least fulfill on finishing this film to honor, to honor those people, to honor the Brown family, to honor, you know, my son to, you know, there were just all these sort of things that were, were sort of um, looming, I guess. Um, and, uh, and then I didn't know how to raise money. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, now how do I learn how to raise money? You know, I got to learn how to raise money. So part of the seven year process is, was just raising money, you know, the, mm-hmm. the two years of downtime trying to figure out what the hell am I going to do? You know? And then I would get a, a major celebrity involved and I would think, Oh, this is the Holy grail. They're going to, they're just going to pl- pl- pluck down a million dollars for me to finish this film. You know, now I, I realize, you know, I know different, but at that time I thought, Oh, they're going to pluck down a million dollars for me to finish the film. They're like, no, we're just lending you our name. Mm-hmm. We're not, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving you any money. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Oh, great. Thank, thanks for your name. Now, what do I do with that name? Yeah. They're giving me their name. Now I got to use that name to raise money, but how do I raise money? What do I, you know? So it just, then you got to figure that out. You know what I mean? And then some people did give me some money, but not enough money, you know? And so it was just, you know, this process of, you know, depression and anxiety and wanting to give up. And I think um, I would just leave people with the idea that, um, that the miracle is always right around the corner. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes the, um, you know, you do the work, you put in the effort, you, you do the best version of what you're trying to do that you can do mm-hmm. even if you have to do less of it you, you know you make sure that that you know that one paragraph is the best paragraph you've written if you're a writer or if you're a filmmaker that five minutes is the best five minutes you've ever made rather than trying to make two hours that looks like crap mm-hmm. with that little amount of money make five minutes that is great and then use that five minutes that is great to raise money to make the two hours but don't just blow it all in the two hours if you if, if you don't really have the adequate amount of resources and the ability to do it in a way that's actually good or reasonably good don't you know spend your time focused on making quality and then and then and then take that quality and and share it with people and ask people to help um right and like i said there were two two-year periods where there was just no money and i didn't know what to do and i'm depressed and i'm carrying my baby around i'm walking around the neighborhood and sort of in a semi uh zombie-like state i'm exaggerating a bit but um you know trying to figure out what i'm going to do with my life and how am i how am i going to finish this film and uh and then you know and then i meet someone another father on the street who's walking around with his baby you know it turns turns <laughs> right. out to be my friend matt become friends with him I, you know i realize if he's walking around the street in the middle of the day he's probably a filmmaker like most people in la or some kind of artist you know musician you know something like that and so right. we become friends and he introduces me to to tj to martin who's you know academy award winner emmy winner who he knows through the Seattle contingent of people. And, you know, we've been friends for three months and he introduces me to TJ um, and, uh, and, and TJ loves the film and says he wants to help. And then he comes on board and then he introduces me to David Oyelowo, who, who, who he had met a couple of weeks prior, who, who came on board and wanted to help. And then David Oyelowo introduces me to Gigi Pritzker, who's, um, you know, um, part of the Pritzker family and, you know, legendary, um, you know, owner, hotel owners and, you know, and then she put in some money, you know, and it was like, you know, but was that enough to finish it? No. So I had to go raise some more, you know, so it was just, but it, but it was good to have that momentum and, and, and to be reinvigorated after a two year wait. But I mean, I say that all, all to say that, that essentially, um, you know, the miracles do come, I think, if you put in the work and if the intention behind what it is you're doing is, um, is pure in the sense that, you know, what you're doing is a contribution mm-hmm. to society and not just about yourself. Um, and so for me, this film was very much about how do I contribute to society? How do I provide my son, but other people's children with a sense of hope, with a sense that yes, through it all, black people, what is the greatest quality that black people in this country possess is the ability to overcome, the mm-hmm. ability to, to, to spin you know, pain into gold, to, you know, to make jazz, to make blues out of, you know, out of their pain. And, and that we Africans may try to separate ourselves from, from African-American identity, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we are the same people, one. And two, um, you know, African-Americans have contributed a vast amount to the world based on just being a part of America, you know, one of the richest countries in the world, that the contributions of African-Americans are vast and far-reaching. And in the face of discrimination, rampant discrimination, murder, racism, everything else, um, you know, African-American people are, are to be studied, to be revered, to be, to be you know, really to, to, to be worshipped for 
you know, like Native American people, how, did, how in the hell did you make it through? Like if people really want to understand resilience, they would look to African-American people and say, like, we need to figure out how these people did it because we need to, to steal some of these qualities to help us live better lives. Mm. But instead, African-American people are denigrated. Instead, they're seen as less than human. Instead, they're demonized like Michael Brown Jr. and killed. And that is the, um, the, the trajectory that I wanted to, to, you know, to shift. Um, you know, and so in a sense, this is sort of my apology to African-American people for my misperceptions and my ignorance. Uh, you know, my love letter also to African-American people and African-American men in particular to say that I see you. I, I recognize who you are and I see myself in you and I see your, I see your greatness. I see your strength, but I also understand your vulnerability and what our society doesn't understand. They understand the superhuman strength, right? Michael Brown was Hulk Hogan to, um, to a police officer, to Darren Wilson, who was exactly the same height as him yet. Yet he had, he had somehow in his mind, he had, Michael Brown had become this hulking figure, right? To him, a Hulk Hogan figure um, that that lacked in any kind of depth and nuance, right? And and for me, it was about bringing nuance and depth to the to the black working class, to to black men in, in specific. Um, that yes, we're, our feelings and our emotions may seem hidden behind some sort of bravado or some sort of you know, or because we're men, they're just sort of subtle but they're still there, you know? So, yeah. you know, the, the basketball player, the rapper, um, you know, the, whatever, the, 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 the thug, we are more than that. And, uh, and, and the society forgets that. And so, and even if we are a thug, quote unquote, or a basketball player, we have feelings, <laughs> you know, we have, there's, there's a humanity to be respected. There's something underneath all that. And there's a reason behind that, you know, and, and, and that we need to get to the root of, who we really are, and and people need to see us, uh, you know, no matter what we are characterized as via these stereotypes as human beings, uh, as three dimensional characters. Yeah, I think it's so easy for people one to assume that all black people think the same about all these kind of things, and have same experiences. And it's like fascinating to hear how, like, just your experience as an African coming to America. And how you look at black people in America and um, and how media shapes or has shaped like how, how you looked at black people. And I think that um, when you when you think about the kind of films that you want to make, do you feel that there is, for lack of a better word, an obligation by black people? Because you had said something earlier about so much of like black media being related to comedy, and you know one can make the argument because there's so much, there's been so much pain in our history, we have to turn it to comedy so we could laugh it off. But do you feel that there is an obligation for black artists, whether they be filmmakers or podcasters, or whatever, to use their craft to? tell our stories in you know a serious and evocative way that enlightens the world about who we really are um i mean i, I don't think it has to be serious i mean I, you know i'm actually working on a, a comedy television show right now but mm -hmm. um but i think it just has to be a, a tad bit more thought out mm -hmm. in terms of the global implications of it all. I mean, you see what was happening in Ukraine with the African students mm -hmm. and how they couldn't get out and how they were being mistreated. Right, right. You know, um, this sort of um, the marketing of our global image has implications, mm -hmm. you know, life or death implications for people around the world, even here in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. The demonizing of black men in the media has made it easier for us to be killed. So right. there are implications, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, when Radio Rahim, uh, you know, is mad and, uh, and do the right thing and, and, and they finally, and the place is burning down. Well, actually, well, when Radio Rahim is mad um, and, you know, and gets, uh, you know, choked out by the police because of these pictures on the wall, it gives people the impression that Black people have stupid reasons for their causes. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the movie was so good that you, you know, some of us, mm -hmm. um, maybe overlooked 
some of those idiosyncrasies. But mm -hmm. um, I remember at the time when I first watched it um, in high school, being very upset, being very disappointed and upset and thinking, you know, really? Like, those people were that stupid that they were, you know, you're going to get into a, a major confrontation over some pictures on the wall in an institution that's not your own. Right. Like, this is not a black person that owns this institution. He's Italian. It's a pizzeria, which is also Italian. So right. why do you want black people on the wall of an Italian place? Why wouldn't, wouldn't you want black people on the wall of a Jamaican place? Wouldn't you want your own place? I mean, that's not even comedy. I don't know why I got on that one, but, but that's not even comedy because that's a drama. But, but I think, you know, maybe it was an easy device, a visual device for the filmmaker to use, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, then, then doing, you know, then using something more, you know, more deep and more relevant, but um, you know, the film's still an important film, still, you know, on one of my all-time favorite films, despite yeah. its shortcomings. But again, there, there's, for us, we can see past those shortcomings as Black people in this country. Um, but globally, mm -hmm. um, I think people don't take Black people seriously. You right. know? And, and there's a reason why our media doesn't help that, you mm -hmm. know, the, the things that we agree to, right? You know, um, have a deep and profound respect for Steve Harvey, have a deep and profound respect for Oprah Winfrey, um, and yet um, Oprah Winfrey. I say this to my students, and I don't, you know, and I know this is not. I'm sure Oprah Winfrey's intention, nor is it Steve Harvey's intention, but we are part of a long tradition of black imagery that um, that started with Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. and uh, and those early representations of black folks as the mammy figure, as, mm -hmm. you know, whether it be step and fetch it, whether it be, you know, uh, you know, the coon figure, the uncle Tom. And I think sadly we've, um, inculcated those images and internalized them in such a way that, um, that we replicate them, mm -hmm. you know, on mass without even being conscious of the fact that we're replicating them. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the most, astonishing part like you know sadly uh in the subconscious of white america oprah winfrey is probably still the mammy figure mm. you know she's coddling and taking care of white women and, and white children as black women have always done historically mm -hmm. right um so she becomes that figure um and in in a way maybe subconsciously she found herself into the you know in that role because that's sort of a natural groove where black people fit Mm -hmm. You know, Steve, Steve Harvey is, you know, is, is very much the, um, the, the Sambo character in, in the lineage, um, with that big smile mm -hmm. and, and the constant laughter. Um, you know, again, no, no disrespect to either one of them, but I, I think there's a way in which, you know, we, we know what roles to play in order to succeed in the society, mm -hmm. um, on such a deep level that, that we don't even have to think about them we know which groove to fall into, right? And mm -hmm. if we aren't more conscious of those grooves um, that we fall into, we, we will continue to perpetuate some of those images. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know that I know what the solution is, but I, um, because certainly people have to make money, they have to make a living. And as, um, as Hattie McDaniel said um, when she won the Academy Award for Gone with the Wind, I could have either played a maid for $300 a week or I could, I could have been a maid for $3 a week. Mm -hmm. So, so to me, it was better to play a maid for three hundred dollars a week than right. to be a maid for one hundredth of the price at three dollars a three dollars right. a piece. So she's like, you know, hey, this is what this is what I got. I'm a heavy set black woman. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they wanted me to play, and they were paying me a hell of a lot of money. And yeah. so, and I think that's the challenge where, where we fall into that. There, there's only certain slots created for us, and uh, and until we break out of that or figure out a way to create new slots. Um, we kind of recreate those same slots with a new shell to them, you know. I was actually going to offer pushback on the uh, on Good. the Oprah Winfrey one. Like, like nothing about Oprah Winfrey to me says Mammy. You know, I mean, black woman, slightly heavy set. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I don't want to insult her again. And I don't know how she considers herself, but right. um, and the vast majority of her fans are white women and, and white women. Mm -hmm. who are, you know, in her age bracket or sometimes a little bit younger. Right. Um, but, you know, many of whom might have been taken care of by black women in, in the South, mm -hmm. older black women, mammy type figures in, in the right. South. So I'm not suggesting in any way that she is 
replicating that on a conscious level, but I think their their response to her. Oh, so you're saying there's that, like a res- a response to her that's been created in the zeitgeist right. that she doesn't really have control over. There's a familiarity mm-hmm. that she holds with them that they may not even be conscious of, but this is this is like the, my Jamaican maid. This is like my you know mm-hmm. the woman who worked in our house down south. You know that's who she reminds me of, or or even just through through media. That's right. you know there, there's a subconscious thing where where black women are a source of comfort. You know, and particularly in particular, heavyset black women are a source of comfort. So, so I see her and I see comfort, right? You know, because I've been trained to see comfort, and she subconsciously or consciously knows that this is how white women and other women respond to her. What could she do as an alternate? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't know that I have the solution. I mean, yeah, when you're a, a, a thin black woman, you're certainly a threat in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're the bitchy character. You're the um, there's just certain places where you you know you fall in, uh, you know. You know, maybe I'm the Urkel character, right? You know, I don't know if there was <laughs> never an Urkel um, character in, in, in Black history, like going back. But again, Urkel even himself fell into the sort of buffoonish mm-hmm. realm. So, sure. you know, again, there's a, there's a history and a through line. This is what I talk to my students about, you know, through everything we do. And, you know, and I may be playing some of those roles myself. I don't know. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know that it's possible to escape falling into those roles because we are, um, we are, shaped by these external factors these large external mm-hmm. factors that and in the capitalist society we're required to make money you, you know sometimes you make money where you fall in right so i mean there's mm-hmm. a reason why there's a ton of black kids that are basketball players or rappers or wannabe because that's just that's they see that that's the opportunity they see in front of them and they need to make a living yeah how do we then how do we tell stories that we want to tell without worrying basically without worrying about what I've heard another Instagrammer call the white gaze, G-A-Z-E. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I teach about the white gaze for sure. I mean, I think. Um, and quickly, can you, <sighs> I know what it is, but can you just briefly explain what it is? I mean, the simplest way to describe it is that everything that we see or read or hear about is told from a particular perspective. Mm-hmm. And that perspective is generally the perspective of you know, dominant America mm-hmm. and dominant America is white. Therefore, mm-hmm. the gaze through which we see things and the, the, the voice through which we're, we're, we're told things is, uh, is a white voice um, yeah. and a white gaze. The imagery is created via white people's interpretation of black people. Um, you know, and I think that's always the challenge in, in, in Hollywood, right? Is who, get, who gets the green light in the movies? Mm-hmm. You know, if the person green light in the movies isn't, isn't black, how are they sure that they're adequately representing black culture? They're not. Right. Or maybe they don't want adequately, you know, who knows, depending on how far it goes. But even if it's not going that far, it's just they don't, they may not know enough to, to choose the right things, you know? And mm-hmm. so, yeah. So how do you avoid um, uh, sort of participating or upholding the white gaze and stuff? I think you have to constantly interrogate your work um, and, be, and be open to interrogation and not take it personally. Mm-hmm. You know, when people interrogate my work and have said things, I'm like, you know, I have to think about it. Yeah, like maybe they're right. You know, maybe I slipped there. Um, you know, maybe we show it to someone before we actually put it out there and go, look, am I slipping? And they go, yeah, yeah, you're slipping. But a lot of people don't have those, you know, that sort of educational background. They don't have those, you know, sort of professors and theorists in their life. And they just go about more freely expressing themselves. Right. And that's fine too. I mean, you know, you know, there are consequences and, you know, are you willing to look at those consequences? But if you're not, and, you know, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I think there's room for diverse experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem becomes when there's only one experience and, and that black experience is defined by, you know, like I said, by buffoonery or something negative that that becomes a problem, but there is a space for buffoonish black art because there's buffoonish white art, there's buffoonish Asian art. You know, there's before, it, it exists in every culture, but the problem is when that becomes the only thing, mm-hmm. you know, and then that, become, that becomes the measure of a people when that's the only thing. You know, that's where I think, that's where I come in or where other filmmakers come in who then might bring an alternate perspective to balance it out. The question is, you know, does it make it big in the, in the, in the box office, you know? Yeah. You know, is, is it on Black Panther level where, where it's, you know, ubiquitous and, you know, and everybody loves it? Um, me included, except for the part when the CIA saves 
uh, this black nation, um, or when a CIA agent saves this black nation, which we know historically was the opposite. CIA was destroying black nations in Africa, not, not saving black nations. So that was slightly problematic. Or, you know, or, or when this black nation was around through slavery and had all this technology and did nothing mm-hmm. about, about stopping the enslavement of black people, kind of like the, uh, yeah, you know um, the killmonger character right? yeah, the killmonger character right you you've been there and you just sat there and and you know and and hit out while all this shit was happening to your people right. um slightly problematic narrative even black panther as much as people claim they love it I, I mean if you really think about that there's a slightly problematic narrative there as well and then the, you know and then the ultimate battle scene is between the two black people mm-hmm. what you know what does that say you know um, the, the ultimate battle scene is not between you know the the cia which would be trying to destroy their nation um you know it's between him and you know and killmonger um you know who's trying to take over their and destroy their nation which is the exact opposite you know it, it, you know if, if the battle did happen between him and killmonger it would happen between him and killmonger because killmonger was backed by the cia mm-hmm. and paid for by their dollars in order to go there and destroy the nation like that's you know if, if they want to do it that way that that would be the way to do it for sure <laughs> you know right but anyway, sorry, I, I, dig- I digress. But no, I just, no, no, no. You know. I was. It's curious. I was because you had earlier you had mentioned uh, coming to America. So I was going to ask you what you thought about Black Panther and, and the depiction of that African nation. Yeah. I mean, it was beautiful um, up until you know those sort of kinks mm-hmm. came into the story, and uh, and I was like, you know, who paid for this? Mm-hmm. Who, who approved of this? You know, um, right? What, what sort of slightly so pseudo subconscious messages being sent mm-hmm. about black dependency on on white people to save them even in a powerful black nation mm-hmm. you know what message is being sent you know yeah. I, I don't know before i let you go one last question you usually like to ask is do you have a um a guilty pleasure that you watch either a tv show or a movie uh, I don't have a whole lot of free time, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, um, I wish I could say I had a guilty pleasure, but, um, I don't even, I, I hardly have a chance to watch anything other than when I show my students or, right. or what I have to watch in order to go into a meeting. I, I like Atlanta. I mean, I don't know that's a guilty pleasure, but I just like, I like, if I watch anything, I watch I've been watching the current season, season three. Oh yeah, that last episode, or not the last episode, the second line, the, the reparations episode was the um was probably that was about, that's the most recent one, yeah. No, I thought that was a brilliant episode. Yeah, it's a show that really uh, delves into uh, you know the tr- the truth of the black experience, and I think in a way that um it's it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's it's in no way buffoonish, mm-hmm. and un- unless it's on purpose, you know. It, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's supremely well thought out. So that would be. Um, my show that I, I, you know, I just am amazed by, um, mm-hmm. and that, and that they're genre bending and that they insist on being themselves and doing what they feel like. And, and to have a whole episode where the characters that we pay money to watch aren't even in the episode, mm-hmm. um, that they have the courage to remove themselves mm-hmm. and, and not have themselves be central to everything is, um, is a whole nother level of, I think, creativity and, um, I hope humility. I don't know for a fact because I don't know them, but I mean, you know, I'm right. like, that's that's great that you don't even have to be in every episode. Like, yeah, just, it's a know. trip. The the first, you know, the season premiere. I had. To, I, I didn't was, even see it. I haven't, I haven't seen. I have. I have missed those episodes because my son doesn't sleep very well. So yeah, no, I, I'm not going to give anything away. away. But <laughs> it's it's one of those episodes where they're not in it. I can say that. That's oh, the not, season premiere too. Okay, the season premiere. Oh, okay, good for the season premiere has straight up Jordan Peele vibes. Like in terms of I I was wondering, am I did I turn to the right station? Is it the right show? Um it has an uneasiness to it. It, Yeah, weird one with the piano had the Jordan Peele vibes too on on, in season two, I think it was the one when when he goes to buy the piano or whatever. Right. What I figured out after this last episode, and I'd be curious to see what episode five is like. So far, every episode this season has had some commentary on racism or racial oppression. And I feel like that, I'm wondering if maybe that is what he's doing this season. Like, where it feels like it's just Afro-surrealistic anthology series 
about racism and racial oppression. Like the first episode supposedly is like inspired by like a true event that happened. In each one, there's some core part of the story that deals with either racism or some kind of issue as it relates to uh, racism or racial oppression. Oh, you know the TV show that people have slept on? Random Acts of Flyness. Oh, that's on awesome. HBO. That's I'm that's the show. That. Random very Acts of Flyness. Very bizarre, very black, very political. Is it like no a documentary series? It. No, it's um, it's uh, I mean, Terrence Nance is the um is the filmmaker, and it, but it's Random Acts of Flyness, if I remember correctly. But that show is it is deep on a whole another level as well. So I have, I have mad respect for um can check it out for for those. I mean, you know, I'm really interested in in shows that really do things that are unexpected mm-hmm. um, and random acts of flyness. It can be ridiculous at times, but um, but it um, it's very political. Um, that's what intrigues me when I have time, for sure. And documentaries, of course, as well. Yeah, this has been great. I appreciate it. You got to teach me how to make, how to do podcasts. I want to do a podcast. Absolutely. If we have to. I want to give it up to Mobilize you for coming out and having a great conversation with me. You can find additional links and resources in the show notes or on the blog post for this episode at ProVideoCoalition.com. Crossing 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media and it's part of the Pro Video Coalition Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode is produced, written, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. Editing and mixing by Maria Passingham. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Runner. That's Ronner with an O. And you can follow me on Instagram at Blurred Ronner. Follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at Simply Pro Video. That's it for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. See you in two weeks.